This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Tēnā koutou katoa, ngā mihinui ki a katoa. Welcome to The End of History a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. My name is Shannon Burns. I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society, or the CSS, and I'm actually not going to say more about the CSS right now because my good friend Thomas Roud is going to do that in a moment. This episode of The End of History is a little different from usual. Last Wednesday, the 22nd of March, the CSS had the absolute pleasure of hosting the Canadian tech critic Paris Marx, author of the 2022 work Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, and host of the podcast Tech Won't Save Us. I hadn't encountered Paris before, and I must confess that for someone who works with technology in a library makerspace, I actually don't think that much about technology but I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to hear Paris talk. He was incredibly engaging and really knowledgeable about a whole range of technologies and developments in the technology sector. So all of this is to say that I recorded Paris's talk and I'm going to play it for you now. I won't be back at the end of this episode because I'm really testing the limits of my time slot here. So I'll just say a huge thanks to Paris Marks, Thomas Roud and everyone who came along to the event last Wednesday evening. Please enjoy this conversation, please share, and please feel free to visit socialistsocieties.org.nz or email canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com. Hello. Hello. Hi. How's that for levels? Is everyone feeling like they can hear me? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Huh. Uh, welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for coming out on what is a fairly cold night of a relatively cold week so far. Um, if anything, it's better out there than it has been, right? So that, that's easy to get uh, motivated to get out of the house when it's finally a tiny bit of blue sky, even if it's still pretty chilly. Um, for those who don't know me, my name's Tom. I'm one of the executive members of the um, Canterbury Socialist Society. And uh, on behalf of the Canterbury Socialist Society, it is our great pleasure to welcome um, Paris Marx uh, to speak to us this evening. Um, Paris is come all the way from Canada specifically for us. Wow. Um, he's come for a visit, and he, but he was also uh, happy to offer to speak about some of his expertise and research, and, um, and it's just really lovely to have him. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And um, before I get straight into that, uh, it, with a, we'll sort of do an interview sort of format where I'll ask Paris a few questions. Paris will uh, answer those, and once we finish the ones I've got pre-done, we'll probably do a quick break just so that people can have a quick breather because it's pretty warm in here with so many people and stuff and um, then we'll come back and be able to have some time for questions from the audience. Um, but before I get straight into uh, the questioning for Paris, um, uh, I'll do a little bit of a admin stuff. So um, for those of you who haven't ever come along before to the Canberra Social Society events, um, we are a membership organisation um, that was started in Canterbury in 20, late 2017, um, became more formal over time, but the main thing we do are these sorts of events, so 
uh, public uh, free to attend uh, educational lectures is our bread and butter. The, well, I guess that's our bread. Our butter is our social side of things, so we do also like to, to hang out and chat. Um, so that's uh, the two regular events we do every single month. Usually our usual space is um, Space Academy on the second Wednesday of every month. We have that as a rolling booking. But because this is a bonus event, really, really appreciate Dark room to Feather and also to Nick who's working tonight for having us here. And I'd like to just give him a quick round. So please be nice to Nick, who's the one person you're working for all these lovely people who have arrived. So yeah, be patient, be nice, etc. Um, uh, as far as other stuff about us, um, if you'd like to learn more about us, you're welcome to jump on the mailing list, which is sold by Martin here, who you can probably recognise as also a member of the Canterbury Social Society, due to his fetching T-shirt. Um, there's a mailing list there. We also published this, uh, which is also near Martin, but uh, the Colin Wheel. It's uh, at the moment uh, twice a year um, periodical. I suppose is the best term for it. Uh, we, we write it, we, we design it, and we print it. Um, you can subscribe to that, or you can buy them off us for $5 a, uh, um, this evening if you'd like to, but that's just got lots of different stuff about different aspects of politics, culture, um, reviews, and so on. Um, if you'd like to join the Canterbury Social Society, we're pretty, uh, we're like a warehouse bargain bin as far as socialist groups go. It's 40 bucks a year. It's, Great, it's excellent. It's less than a dollar a week, guys. It's very, very good. But um, I think we, we deliver a, a, a great array of events, and um, uh, a big part of what we do is about the conversation that you have with each other. Because I think um, my friend and fellow member of the executive committee, Nick, said it the other day to me that politics often starts when you all sit around a big table. That's it. You start from there, and you see how it goes. Um, anyway, that's, that's enough about us, I think. Um, and as far as admin things go, Anyone suggest anything like this? Not really. Oh, Commonwealth's included in the membership. That's right. So your Commonwealth's included in the membership. So you do get free, free um, subscription to Commonwealth if you join as a member. You also get a membership pack, which has a few goodies in it, which I can talk to you about, talk to you about later if you'd like to ask me about it or one of the other people that knows about it. Monthly radio program. There's a monthly radio program. So on the last Monday of every. Um, of every month, we have a radio program which is hosted by Shannon, who's somewhere out there, I think at the back there. Um, she often interviews somebody or talks about a bunch of stuff. There's, um, there's reviews of films and stuff she's been reading or other members have been reading. There's music in there. It's worth listening to. It's on Plains FM. You can listen to old versions. You just go to the Plains FM website and find it. That one's called The End of History. Um, so that's really fun. Um, and the last thing I'll mention before we get into the actual thing, and I do a proper introduction for our <laughs> lovely guest who's been so patient while I've been blathering on about all our stuff, um, is uh, social drinks. We do that once a month. Usually it's not the same week as a, as a lecture, but because this is a bonus little thing we're doing, it is actually this Friday at Conroy's. You're all very welcome to come on if you'd like to. It's a pretty low-key event. We talk about politics if we have to, <laughs> but we talk about pretty much anything, whatever people actually bring along with them. You can find us because we have our banner on whatever table we happen to find, and that's any time from five, so it's a bit of a once a month after we've drink, so kind of vibe that we do. Um, so, moving on with the event. Um, it's my great pleasure to get to do this. Uh, I am a little familiar with Paris Marx, and when it came up that you were visiting New Zealand, I was really happy to say, yes, we'll absolutely do an event, because I just listened to a podcast that you're on where you were interviewed about your sort of 
special tea when it comes to um, the critique of technology. And obviously, as you all know, this event is called Tech Won't Save Us. Um, the Canberra Social Society, I reckon, has a uh, general mood. It may not be every single member, but overall the vibe is probably tech... Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the word? Ambivalent, I guess. Not necessarily pessimistic, but uh, a little bit like, well, we're not quite sure about all that carry on. And we've always emphasised that like, what we like to do is get face-to-face because we think, you know, the left in particular, but perhaps humanity as a whole, has really suffered in some ways by the way that technology has become such a mediating factor in our lives. So I'm really interested to have this conversation. Um, but my first question for you is to sort of say, yeah, would you like to introduce yourself, your sort of background, you know, um, and uh, as a tech critic, uh, author, as a, as a journalist, or a person you know, published in various publications and stuff, what's your, what's your primary sort of critique? What are you trying to say about technology today? Sounds good. Thanks so much, Tom. Um, you know, and obviously thanks to the Canterbury Socialist Society for inviting me. Thanks to all of you for, for coming out to, you know, hear me talk about my work <laughs> and to provide a critique of the tech industry. Um, yeah, so I host a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us. Um, I wrote a book called Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. And that is based on work that I did in my master's researching um, you know, the tech industry, what they were proposing for transportation in the, you know, in the sense like autonomous vehicles, ride hailing services, uh, flying cars, boring company tunnels under cities, all these things that uh, many of which have not really arrived or come to pass and have not really improved the transport system uh, as, as we understand it and experience it, right? Um, and yeah, so I guess if I'm thinking about kind of my general approach, I've been writing about technology now since uh, 2015 so you know it's been a slow build it's not like it just uh, kind of took off overnight or anything like that um, but I think my concern is that we see these tech companies right they have a lot of ideas about what the future should look like about what society should look like um, they get a lot of us really excited about what that society could be they promise to solve a lot of the problems that we face um, in our day-to-day lives and they tell us just wait a few years and we'll deliver this technology that will solve all your problems, right? Um, and then what we notice is that a few years pass and that technology doesn't arrive. And these opportunities that we could have taken to actually address the problems that they said they were going to address aren't taken because we're just hoping that the tech industry is going to do it for us, right? Why um, take measures to reduce road deaths, for example, or reduce the amount of time that people spend stuck in traffic? Um, when we can just wait and maybe autonomous cars will come and, you know, just fix that problem for us. Um, and so I guess that is kind of my general approach to technology. It's not just about transportation. You know, I look at many different aspects of it. But I think my main concern is how the tech industry and how these big promises and ideas for what technology can do distract us from things that we can do today to actually improve the society that we live in, to improve people's lives, to improve quality of life, um, yeah, and all these other things that are actually important to people. Um, uh, you mentioned your book, uh, um, what, you know, What's Looking for Ellie? It's wrong about technology. Road to Know It. Great, great title. Um, and we, we have some members in the society working sort of like um, uh, uh, transport, but it's more in the realm of distribution, I suppose. And I guess I was curious um, whether... When it comes to Silicon Valley, you, you hear a lot about um, Uber, you hear a lot about 
you know, self-driving cars, you hear a lot about the hyperloop, you hear a lot about these these ideas around public transport. They don't talk as much about the movement of goods and sort of the movement of, you know, of, of commodities so that they get to people that actually need them. Um, do you think that, are there aspects that to that, um, you know, that Silicon Valley sort of mindset that are thinking about those things? Or do you think they sort of disappear out of a, you know, the sort of weirdly immaterial aspect of the way they think about the world? Uh, do they, are they not really concerned about that? They're just worried about, like, you as a consumer being able to quickly get to the pub without having to talk to a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think they definitely think about it, right? And, and of course, as you say, the book focuses a lot on passenger transportation as well, so that's, that's really my focus. But when we look at the movement of goods, there's been a massive transportation, or transformation, rather, um, in how that all works, right? It's not just, um, you know, obviously we have the kind of logistics system that we're used to with all of these companies transporting goods, Amazon kind of replicating a model that was set up by Walmart to bring a lot of goods in from China that are low cost to, to sell to consumers. Um, but then on top of that, it's not just that you go to a big box store and you buy whatever goods that you need and you bring them home. The real innovation of Silicon Valley or what it has tried to do to kind of change this or you know, tech companies more generally. When I say Silicon Valley, I don't always just mean what happens in the Bay Area, but you know, a lot of tech companies that are inspired by this model that then kind of has expanded globally, really. And, and a lot of tech sectors in a lot of different parts of the world have sought to emulate it. Um, and so when we look at the movement of goods, we not only have companies like you know, Uber and these other kind of gig economy companies that have encouraged um, a more kind of delivery-based uh, you know, way of buying things, basically. You, know, you get your food delivered to you. You can order a ton of other things that can be delivered to you. But even before that happens, you have Amazon promoting the vast expansion of e-commerce. So again, instead of going to your Walmart, your big box store, and buying something like that, I know, I know you don't have Walmart here in New Zealand, apologies. Um, I, I should be using Pack and Save or something like that <laughs> as an example. Um, but in, instead of doing that, you know, you go shop at Amazon or one of these other major um, e-commerce websites, and then what you buy is shipped directly to your door, right, instead of having to go to a shop. And that really changes the way that logistics works, right, the way that shipping networks works. It's meant a lot of change to postal services, but also shipping services beyond that. And, you know, one of the consequences of that that I think we don't often think about, sure, it's promoted as convenient, it's set up in such a way that it's usually presented as cheaper, um, for you to do something like that, especially you know, with some with a company like Amazon, you buy into a Prime service, so you pay a certain amount of, of money every year, and then because you're you're paying for that, you get discounted and quick shipping. Um, but it also encourages you to buy more, right? Because I'm paying 100, 120 dollars a year to access this service. So if I if I'm not buying things from it, then I'm not getting the benefit. Um, and so it creates that kind of uh, feedback loop, right? That incentive to keep buying in that way. And the consequence of that is that it also has an environmental impact, right? Because when you're buying things in this way, when everything you buy has to be delivered straight to your door, that has a greater environmental impact. It, it creates more emissions than if you were buying from, you know, kind of a centralized place, right? And I think that that's a piece of this that hasn't really entered into that conversation. And then, of course, we could get into how Amazon itself is transforming logistics networks in North America and increasingly around the world as well, where it's trying to opt out of these unionized um, 
you know, shipping companies, postal services, and things like that to ensure that it is using workers that are ununionized, that are paid as little as possible, that are potentially kind of independent contractors, that, uh, you know, delivering things through gig economy services. Um, and now in, in North America, we have UPS, you know, one of these big shippers going, potentially going on strike this year um, as they're fighting for better contracts. But there's a real kind of push to reduce the working conditions, to reduce the wages of people who are working in logistics and in warehouses. And that's really being pushed by Amazon in particular because it has so much market power. I don't write this question down, but on that specific thing, do you think there's an aspect of that squeeze that Amazon's applying? Do you think, like, Will that, will that reach a certain limit? Like, are they still basing this ability to supposedly revolutionise this industry around the possibility of, like, more generalised automation? Is that is that still underwriting it, or are they actually quite... Are they profitable already, or are they more like Uber, where the plan is to crush the competition, and then eventually maybe there might be self-driving cars? But Yeah, yeah it, it's a bit of both, right? Like, they do... Um they do try to roll out robots and increase automation, but because the demand has increased so much for their business, um, they still have to hire a lot more workers in order to deliver all these things, right? Um, one of the things that is, I think, really key to understand with a lot of these companies, especially working like in physical goods delivery and stuff like that in the tech industry, the gig economy, the Ubers and, and kind of delivery apps as well, um, is that they benefited immensely from the recession of 2008 and 2009, right? The, the great financial crash or whatever we call it. Um, because after that moment, there were a lot of people who had lost their jobs, who were unable to find like equivalent work and needed to make up the difference in their pay. And so they took to these apps to get this additional kind of work. Um, and all of these tech companies really took advantage of that. So, you know, they got these workers who are willing to accept less pay, who are willing to, you know, accept the exploitation that comes with working for one of these apps, um, and they were able to build massive business models based on that, whether it's Uber or, you know, various delivery apps. Amazon actually has its own um, gig economy app that is, you know, just uses independent contractors on top of its logistics service. But then the other piece of it is, you know, Amazon a lot of its employees are actually warehouse employees, right? Not kind of employees that are in its headquarters. And it took warehousing and, and working in these fulfillment centers, which was previously unionized work that got really good pay and turned it into more of like a minimum wage job where, you know, it's kind of a lower rank of, of employment and it becomes like your new equivalent to working at McDonald's or working at Walmart um, instead of kind of the unionized good job that it was before. And so these kind of transformations are happening, even as, sure, they're implementing robots, they're, they're trialing new forms of automation, but they still need all of that human labor. But when they do need the human labor, they're ensuring it doesn't have a union, they're ensuring they can pay it as little as possible. Um, and that's part of the way that they're transforming kind of labor relations um, in the process. And, and, you know, using technology to do that, and promising that this is efficient in the future and all that stuff. Um, We've talked a little bit about sort of the app side of things, which obviously has an implication towards logistics, like you say, and employment and all that sort of thing. I was sort of wondering, wondering what you thought about the, um, the way the modern tech industry tends to favor a model of um, ownership that is almost entirely subscription-based, and that's not just in the form of the apps that we pay for or Amazon Prime that you mentioned and things like that, but like even the tools that we use day-to-day -day are effectively... Um, 
and practice rented from these large tech companies. Like, if we want to use them in our own way, if we're working, if we want to try and do something with them, it voids their warranty. It's not really a tool that you buy and then can do something with. It's something that you, um, you your right to use them is based on using them in the way that that company has designed and decided. And if you if you go outside of that more and more, that's um, you know considered. Uh, not the correct way of using using these goods, and if you don't continue to pay every year to keep using these tools, you know, if you don't continue being part of whatever you know machine that is, you're you're no longer you know covered. You know, can really use them. They break them. They do whatever they need to do. Like, can you speak a little bit to that? Like the the aspect of the physical goods of technology, not just the um, the way that apps and that end of technology changes things. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's a really important development, right? Because we see this broader kind of transformation of how we consume, of how we engage with the economy. And by turning these things that we would previously own into more of a rentier service or something that is simply licensed to us, it does provide a lot more profit opportunity for these companies, right? They transform it in such a way that we have to keep paying every month or every year in order to access a particular service instead of buying something once and then we own it, right? You don't just buy a DVD or, or a Blu-ray and then you know you can watch a movie as much as you want or you, know, you, you buy a book and you just own it. Instead, you need to pay for a subscription to a streaming service where you get access to a library of, of content but now what we're seeing is, you know, the early promise even of those sorts of things is being kind of pulled back as these companies see that that really wasn't uh, a great way to set it up. And so now they're taking a lot of content out of the libraries. They're making sure there's more and more streaming services. So it resembles kind of cable television, uh, you know, uh, much more than, than it did originally, right? The kind of original promise of what this technology would be, of what this way of consuming things would be, is revoked because now all of a sudden, you know, the, the free money that venture capitalists were giving them where they could lose a billion or two dollars a year um, is transformed and they need to actually have a reasonable, reasonable business model that is going to generate profit. And so now prices are going up, the content you can access is being removed. Um, but even when you think about books, right, the movement from a physical book, something that you own, something that you can buy, you can lend to somebody, you can, you know, sell it uh, back to a used bookstore and they can sell it on to somebody else. Is transformed to a license that you buy for an ebook, right? And so you can use it on a particular device, but um, these companies can always revoke the license. It's very uncommon for them to do it, um, but it also makes sure that you can't sell the license again. You can't, uh, you know, lend it to somebody else. It's very limited in how you can then use that book because it's been turned into a digital product. And then I think the final point that you're getting at there is also just how these goods that we buy are being transformed by this general business model. So one thing that I hear a lot and that you know I feel like needs to be looked into a little bit more by like journalists and people who, who dig into this, but like, you know, the the kitchen appliances and things that we use, right? Is they used to last forever when they didn't have all these kind of digital technologies built into them when the business model kind of um, reflected the idea that you buy this thing and it's going to last you a long time, it's going to work, it's going to do what you need it to do, but now all of a sudden all of our appliances need to be connected to the internet and they need to have screens in them and touch screens and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, they don't work nearly as long. You need to replace them much more frequently. You can't get repair service anymore because that's not profitable. Um, so, yeah, there's a real transformation there just to make everything something that you can continue to extract more profit from to make it less sustainable as well. Like, you know, at the same moment we're talking about how do we uh, address climate change, how do we ensure that things are built to last, 
you know, we're kind of going in the complete opposite direction because digital technology has to be built into everything. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Trying to decide which way to go because there's, there's <laughs> a lot in the, in the, can feed into a couple of questions I've got next. Um, you mentioned briefly uh, earlier on around um, you know venture capital and the way that tech companies have had quite a you know a bit of a gravy train in some ways where they've just been able to lose a few billion dollars here and there to be massively overvalued and said that they're worth like billions of dollars when they haven't actually done anything yet. One of the more popular examples is the fact that Tesla doesn't seem to really make any cars. Not very many, <laughs> certainly, um, but uh, there, there are plenty of examples like that. Um, and something that's brought that into popular consciousness a little bit more, I think, this in the last couple of weeks is the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Um, a lot more people are interested in uh, where the enormous amount of funding and venture capital for Silicon Valley even comes from. Who has this money? Um, you know, could you speak to this? Like, what is SoftBank, for example? Who are the major players, and why, why do they look to fund and often enormously overvalue these companies? Like. Why do, why do they do it? Yeah. Who, are, who are they and why do they do what they do? Yeah, it, great question. Question we should always be asking, it seems. Um, it, it's fascinating to look at that business model because it's really key to shaping like the entire economy that we've had for the past 15 years, basically. Um, so after the 2008-2009 recession, you know, after the economic kind of collapse and difficulty in that moment, the responses of a lot of governments was to reduce interest rates to near zero, right? So all of a sudden, um, there was very little interest that you'd receive on your money, but it also meant that there was really easy access to capital for a lot of these major firms, and they had to ensure that that money was kind of invested in something so that they could possibly get a return on it, right? Because they weren't going to get it just from letting it sit in, in a bank or, or some investments and things like that. Um, and so that really fueled this kind of bubble in Silicon Valley where a lot of these venture capitalists and these banks were making investments in very speculative um, visions and companies for what the future could look like. You know, Uber is, is a particular example of this. You know, it's a very popular company. For better or worse, it's kind of become part of the transportation infrastructure for a lot of cities around the world, but it's never actually made a profit. Um, you know, it was started in 2008. Um, and yeah, it's never actually made money. Um, it still loses money to this day, and every year they come out and they're like, we promise we're really close to turning a profit this time. Um, and they never actually do it. Um, but you know, these companies have been allowed to continue because access to capital was so cheap. Um, and these venture capitalists, you know, it, it's interesting because they don't necessarily make their money when a company turns a profit. You know, a lot of these venture capitalists have made profit on Uber, even though the company itself has never, never made a profit, because they put their money in at a really early stage. And the goal is always to get the company to an IPO, to an initial public offering, right? Get it offered on the stock market, then you get the, the stock to go up. Their initial investment is worth a lot of money. They can sell out at that period, and then they kind of offload you know, their investment and, and the stocks and things like that onto retail investors, onto other investors who are then kind of left holding the bag for that. Um, and, you know, the recent kind of interest and, and hype around cryptocurrency was that kind of accelerated. You had a lot of companies launching what were called tokens or, or cryptocurrencies that um, would rapidly increase in value. They could sell them off really quickly, so they didn't have to wait for the kind of initial public offering for the company to go public. It was a much more kind of rapid turnover to for these for these venture capitalists to make their money. 
And so now what we see is after that kind of 15 years where they could make these really speculative bets, even if these companies didn't necessarily make a profit, as long as they made it to IPO, they would kind of make their money back. They would, they would make a lot of money off of it. We're seeing interest rates go up again because of you know, the inflationary period that we're experiencing right now. And that has really kind of altered and really disrupted the business model that Silicon Valley has been built on for 15 years. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of these people who are influential in the Valley, in the tech industry more broadly, have kind of forgotten what it means to run a business without low interest rates and without you know, being able to rely on that easy access to capital. And that is part of what we see with a lot of these companies laying a lot of people off recently. It's not necessarily because companies like Facebook or Meta, whatever you want to call it, or Google or Amazon or Microsoft can't afford to pay all these workers. They certainly can. They still make a lot of money. But to keep investors happy, they have to show that they're cutting in some sort of way, um, that they're being more efficient, that they are um, you know, being more rational with how they allocate capital. And so that means a lot of people are losing their jobs. And then to get to your final point on this, is Silicon Valley Bank recently. So maybe you've seen it in the news. It was a massive bank that was, um, you know, it banked a lot of the companies and, and powerful and wealthy people who were in Silicon Valley. And the idea was that this bank offered really good banking services to the wealthy people in Silicon Valley. It went to all the venture capitalists that said, you know, we can give you a mortgage that you, know, you won't pay any interest on. We can make sure that you have really easy access to credit so that you can you know, afford to um, fund whatever lifestyle that you want and you don't really need to, to worry about any of that. And then kind of in exchange, they would make sure that whenever they funded a new company, um, they would say, okay, now go over to Silicon Valley Bank, set up your bank account here. They'll give you access to credit cards and like whatever you need. And it was a really kind of uh, you know, beneficial relationship for a lot of these players that were involved. But the bank was also set up in such a way that it depended on low interest rates to continue operating. And it made its investments um, based on the kind of assumption that low interest rates were going to continue. And so then when interest rates rose, all of a sudden it was uh, in a pretty difficult situation. And because it had a lot of really wealthy clients who knew one another and were very um, you know, concentrated in one particular industry, as long as, as soon as some people, you know, got concerned about the quality of the bank's investments and whether their money would still be safe, they all kind of pulled their money at once, and that caused the bank to collapse. Um, and so, I, I do think it, it shows that there's a fundamental problem, there's a fundamental issue with the, with the business model of the valley, and they're still trying to figure out what the tech industry is going to look like in the near future, you know, in this new kind of environment of higher interest rates. And it's really not clear that they know what they're going to do there. Um, but I do think it shows that, you know, we've already seen um, kind of a general public awakening, people kind of turning on the tech industry in a sense, becoming more skeptical and more critical of a lot of these major companies. Um, and the response to that collapse by a lot of the venture capitalists where they felt kind of personally affronted, where they campaigned for the U.S. government to intervene to make sure all of their money would be protected um, because in the United States it's only the first $250,000 that is in a bank account that is actually insured by the government that you know is guaranteed that you'll get back and they had much more than that in their bank accounts uh, and they wanted to make sure they were going to get it all. Um, and so I think it, you know, the federal government in the U.S. eventually kind of uh, stepped in and, and bailed the, the bank out and made sure that everyone would be fully compensated for what they had in the bank. 
And a lot of people, I think, were very angry to see these people who, for the past 15 years, have built companies that promised the world, that didn't deliver, that really uh, pushed down workers' rights, pushed down wages, transformed the economy in a really kind of exploitative way. Um, and then after seeing all that, got a bailout. Uh, I think a lot of people were really angered by that. And it shows the difficulties that I think the industry and the powerful people in the industry in particular have um, moving forward. It is terribly unfair for them, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so something you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, and then it came up again. That is um, just thinking about uh, you know <laughs> the sort of irony of, of some of these people who who tend to have extremely uh, right wing libertarian kind of ideas around what the government should be doing and shouldn't be doing until something goes a bit wrong for them. Um, and it made me think a bit about also what you said earlier with the. You know the technology we have in a house and how it's so like um so integrated into the internet but also all other kinds of smart technologies you know i work in what's technically a, called a smart building and i've got to say it breaks so much that you really wonder if it's saving anyone any time or the environment anything at all um but i guess um discussions of automation are really popular today um whether that is self-driving vehicles or public transport and distribution or ideas about more generalized automation of production and distribution which you can sort of you can hear like a a socialist version of the generalized automation, but you can also hear the sort of libertarian capitalist version, you know, the Peter Thiel idea, where it's like, if we can just make everything kind of automatic, then me and my five friends can live for millions of years, and we can just get rid of all the other annoying people, because uh, we don't want to talk to them anymore. Um, yeah, our, our fellow citizen, Peter Thiel, has a yeah. 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 I'll say, I forget that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's okay, we'll figure out where he is. I think he's only um, come down here like once or twice. Yeah, that's that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've got, a, I've got a special bonus question for you, but we'll wait till the okay. recording is finished. Um, <laughs> that specifically. Um, do you think these discussions are plausible, like around generalized automation, um, considering the various rare minerals and materials that are needed to make so many machines and complex computers? And batteries and things like that. Like, is this a um, is this a feasible way to even imagine the world running? And if it was, what would it mean? Like, quite a lot of people in the room uh, influenced by thinkers like Marx or sort of thing. That if you supposedly somehow fully automate an economy, where where do you actually generate surplus value in that in that thing? If you remove human variable capital that you can exploit, and it just turns into this automated thing. Even if it was possible, would it then generate some sort of like general crisis of like you know what would you even do to to have price um uh, you know price pressures that would decide the price of various things? How would how would any of that even work anymore? But I guess more more if you pull back a second, like I said, is it even feasible with the resources on Earth to to, to do this thing? Yeah, no, I don't, and, and it's not even like a resource question, it's a technical question as well, right? Um, like, I guess part of the moment when I became more critical of the tech industry and, and you know, really became more skeptical of the claims that a lot of these tech companies were making were in was in the mid-2010s, right? Like, you know, before that, when I was younger, I was very much a tech optimist. You know, I, I was uh, embarrassingly kind of like an Apple fanboy and stuff like that. Like, you know, very embarrassing moments, I don't like to admit. Um, but in, in the mid-2010s, there was kind of a moment where, you know, maybe you'll remember the, the headlines and the promises. The, the, the idea was that just a few years down the line, like millions of jobs were going to be wiped out, right, because of automation. 
Self-driving cars were coming. They were going to be here in a few years. That was going to eliminate virtually all driving jobs, right? Taxi drivers, you were going to lose your jobs. Truckers, gone. You know, we won't need you anymore. And what will all these people do? We'll just need a basic income to be able to give these people kind of a subsistence living so they don't, you know, just, just die because they can't feed themselves and stuff, right? Um, and, and this was what a lot of people kind of took seriously in this moment. It was really being pushed by Silicon Valley and a lot of these companies. Um, you know, of course, we can look at our streets and see that self-driving vehicles have not really arrived yet. You know, we're nearly a decade on from that, and there's still very little prospect of those really hitting the street in any kind of meaningful way in the near future. Um, you know, if we look at the pandemic, one of the things that um, caused kind of the, the shipping and supply chain crises was a lack of uh, truck drivers. You know, we needed more of those during the pandemic to be able to ship goods. Um, but then, you know, even beyond that, the promise was that there was going to be much more kind of generalized automation in many parts of societies. The Amazon warehouses were going to all be automated. You know, we were going to have um, automation to such a degree that the lights in the warehouses could be off constantly in the factories and stuff, and they would just constantly churn things out. We would never need workers to do any of that work, right? These were all the sorts of things that were being promised in the mid-2010s that never arrived. Um, and in, in that moment, like as these things were being proposed, I, I was very much caught up in this, right? I was very much of the belief that, yeah, we would need a universal basic income. You know, what were people going to do when all these jobs were going to be eliminated? You know, this notion of fully automated luxury communism. I was like, yeah, that, that's, that's probably what the future is going to look like, right? And then I saw what actually happened, and I said, oh, uh, you know, I really kind of bought into a vision that didn't make any sense and wasn't really fun, wasn't really rooted in kind of the fundamentals of what these technologies are really going to achieve and what they're going to mean for us. And it's no surprise to me that, you know, these kind of narratives are rising again, they're becoming more popular again. You know, we hear about how chat GPT and things like that are going to completely upend, you know, everything now. Um, I'm very skeptical of that um, because, you know, obviously there were periods before the twenty, uh, the mid 2010s when there were also promises of what automation were, was going to mean for us. You know, uh, what was it? Keynes like uh, Keynes like years ago was talking about how we'd just be working like a 15 hour work week by now, um, and obviously that's not the case for most people, right? Um, so when I think about the actual impacts of automation, what that's going to mean, when we look at the automation or, or the supposed automation that's being implemented right now where we have these algorithms that are supposedly doing all this work and stuff like that, when you kind of peel back the layers, what you see is that there's still humans there, right? The humans are just harder to see in the whole kind of picture of what is going on. When we look at, um, you know, the services that are being implemented or being rolled out by gig economy companies. They promise that they have algorithmic management um, where the algorithms are doing everything. But when you look below that, you see that actually a lot of the tasks, the decision-making tasks are not being done by the algorithm, but are being farmed out to really poorly paid people who are doing um, work on click work platforms where they're paying pennies to make little decisions, to verify the photos that gig workers are sending in to show that they are using their own account and things like that. Um, when we look at ChatGPT, for example, it looks like you know the algorithms and and you know the the great computers are doing everything. And then we learn that there's workers in Kenya who are being paid two dollars an hour to go through the kind of prompts that are being put out there to make sure that it's not spewing out like the most racist and terrible stuff that you can imagine. Um, a lot of these supposed automations 
have a lot of humans still working on them. And when we look at something like Amazon, yes, they're rolling out workers in their factories, and, or sorry, they're rolling out robots in their factories, but there's still a ton of workers that are needed to do all of that work. And even then, as you're saying, you know, a lot of these technologies break down really frequently. There's a lot of issues with that. And even when we think about kind of the vast computer simulations and the, and the vast kind of, um, you know, even the things like ChatGPT, all of these technologies depend on um, computers to do all of that work. Massive data centers, you know, um, a, a lot more of these major tech companies are proposing to build some of these data centers in New Zealand. Uh, Amazon is planning one or two, I believe it is, up in Auckland. Um, you know, I believe Microsoft and Google are planning them here as well. These data centers, they use a lot of uh, energy, they use a lot of water, you know, that, that are pulled from the local environment. They also use a lot of minerals, a lot of computer parts that have to be extracted from the earth, that have to be turned into these chips and various things like that, and they also have to be recycled out very quickly. You know, they break down quickly, they have to be trashed or recycled, you know, unfortunately not as much of it is recycled as we would hope, um, and these things have to be created again and again. And so the idea that, you know, we're going to build these computers into kind of every aspect of what is happening, and we don't need to think about that, I think there's a lot of problems there because we're not reckoning with kind of the bigger picture of what that actually means. Um, we're just kind of buying into the tech hype and thinking that, you know, it's going to have this transformative effect when actually when we look at the reality of what we're doing, we see that the transformation is not, uh, you know, nearly as comprehensive as they want us to believe, um, but it works very well for them to get... Uh, you know, to get us to buy into the visions that they want us to believe in, um, you know, the futures that they want to enact through their kind of, uh, you know, corporate practices and the ones that will ultimately work best for them, not just, you know, on a profit motive side of things, you know, so they can make a lot of money, but also in the sense of control, right? So they have greater control over the population, so that they have greater control over the workers. If we look at a company like Uber, for example, you know, they haven't made money in a decade, but they've done a great job of ensuring that the um, rights, the benefits, the working conditions of taxi drivers and people doing that kind of work have been absolutely degraded and have also created the kind of beachhead where that can then be rolled out into other parts of society as well, like we see Amazon doing in warehousing and logistics and these other industries too. So yeah, I guess that would be my Great. Um, okay, I've got two more questions, I think, and then we'll have a little break. Um, I promise I'll give you a little bit of an opportunity to be positive, <laughs> but only if you want to. So, you know, I'm, I'm not forcing you to be positive. Yeah. <laughs> That's not this question so much. Um, but it does, <laughs> it does play a little bit into what you were just saying around um, the question of control and the, the rollout of technology. And I think this is an interesting thing to look at now, particularly because I think it's... Uh, not exactly controversial, but it's something that um, can can definitely cause controversy if not if not handled fairly carefully. So I, I won't put a whole bunch of uh, preemptive things saying that obviously whatever my position is, I'm just going to read the question and hopefully people will give me um, as sympathetic a reading as, as, as can be said. We promise. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so I don't know exactly the COVID-19 response was like in Canada, but in this country and elsewhere, we saw a pretty extraordinary mobilisation of both society and technology in unison uh, for ostensibly pro-social ends, so to stop and sl or slow the spread of the pandemic. Um, nonetheless, we did see from 
aspects of the left and academics like Giorgio Gimbin, right down to you know my own slight discomfort with aspects of how it was brought about. Um, it seems that the ability to use technology in this way made a lot of people um, a, a little bit uncomfortable um, by how it may be used in a different context. So the ability to monitor movement, the ability to expect people to, to carry um, an ability to prove you're allowed to be in the space, even if that space was just a library or a shop or something. It wasn't like the country you're moving into with a passport. It was, a, it was an ability to go inside a, um, a pub or something like that. It, it made a lot of people fairly uncomfortable. Um, and also the, the sort of interesting antagonism between those of us who could use technology to avoid the risk of the pandemic because we were allowed to work from home and we could do that versus people who their job couldn't be done from home because someone still has to go to work you know, in so many different industries. And I wonder if there's anything, you know, around the pandemic and the way technology was used that you had thoughts about that you thought were interesting, um, either in a um, way that was, you know, quite um, positive and a really interesting application of technology or things that you think, um, you know, could be disconcerting to people. Yeah, no, it's a good question, and it's an important one, right? Um, where to start with it is, <laughs> I guess, also a question. Um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, the pandemic response in Canada was generally quite quite different from here. Um, it was better often than what was done in the United States and the UK, if you've, you've heard about that. Um, the part of Canada where I was from had 14-day um, quarantines for, uh, you know, most of the first couple of years of, of the pandemic, so that meant that we had very little kind of uh, COVID in the community, luckily, like you did here, um, which was positive, right? But as you say, there was a lot of technology used to kind of, um, you know, mediate how people lived during the pandemic to ensure that, or, you know, during that stage of the pandemic, at least, um, to ensure that, you know, people were following certain um, expectations for how we would, uh, what, how we would mitigate the spread and, you know, how we would kind of relate to one another during the pandemic, right? Um, I, d I did an episode on my podcast, uh, you know, what, I guess, probably about a year in. Uh, maybe it was even less than that. But kind of about the, the potential impacts of these things, right? And I think one of the concerns is always that when these technologies are rolled out during kind of a moment of crisis, right, during a, an exceptional moment, the worry is always that they will find a way to, uh, you know, to continue to be used in a way that we would not really like them, them to be used in a moment where it's not kind of an emergency, right? I would say that I think, I think for the most part that has not happened, which is good. Um, and so we had the rollout of things like contact tracing apps, of course, apps where um, you know you had to enter your vaccine information to make sure that um, you know that you had been vaccinated to enter a particular space. Um, and, you know, you would have to scan these in various kind of establishments and stuff like that to prove that you were actually vaccinated, that you had kind of followed the, the guidelines. Um, I think, you know, a lot of those things have not stuck around. And I think part of the reason for that is because of, you know, kind of the, the backlash that, that did occur to them. You know, I think maybe you'll be familiar with the fact that in Canada we had, a, you know, a trucker convoy that went to Parliament that, uh, you know, caused a lot of kind of political issues um, that was very kind of opposed to various uh, COVID uh, measures that, that occurred. 
Um, and that did cause a lot of governments to remove a lot of those measures probably early, a bit earlier than a lot of the public would have would have liked. And I know that there was something similar that happened here not long after that, right? And it caused a lot of similar discussions. Um, and so I think, you know, on the point about the technologies in particular, they were rolled out in such a way that the goal was to you know, ensure that we were social distancing, that we were staying away from one another, that if we were close enough to somebody that, you know, a notification could be sent to our smartphones and things like that. The studies that have been done on those kind of contact tracing apps um, in the in the months and years since the pandemic began show that they were very ineffective, right? Show that they didn't actually make much of a difference to the, uh, to mitigating and stopping the spread of the pandemic. You know, maybe that was less of a concern here because there was so little going on in the community, but in other countries where, you know, they didn't do so much like that, there was a real desire to use these apps in, in a way like that. Um, and what we saw is that, you know, human contact tracing people, people who could actually kind of see what contacts you had, see who you were in touch with, and make specific calls to people, that was useful, right? That made a difference. But actually having these apps on people's phones didn't actually make very much difference based on what um, a lot of the research on this has shown. Um, and then on top of that, there were some kind of implementations of AI tools and things like that in healthcare that were rolled out at a moment during the pandemic when people were like, let's just try everything because you know there's a lot going on. Um, and they were also shown to not really be very useful and in some cases were, were even harmful. Um, but many of these technologies were not really useful. I would say the place where we see them potentially sticking around, you know, these things that have been rolled out still being in use is at the border, right? And there's still, there's already been a concern, I think, about the degree of the use of technology, the use of kind of surveillance, of collecting data on us, of collecting personal information, biometrics, and all this kind of stuff. Um, at the border, that I think that is an existing concern that a lot of people have already had. Um, you know, with these with these kind of gates that already have all your information on it, the kind of rollout of e-passports that has happened over the past decade, um, and, and many countries have sought to kind of increase the amount of information that is captured about people who are entering their countries, right? Um, and so, you know, when I um, applied for a visa to come to New Zealand, the suggestion was that you should do it through the app that they had. The app didn't actually work, so I should do it online. Um, <laughs> but then when I went to apply for a visa for um, Australia as well, it was required that I download the app, that I do it all through the app, because it had to be able to scan my e-passport and get some information off of that and all that stuff, right? And so that kind of stuck around. That was not something that was there before. In Canada, we also have an app called ArriveCan. It's no longer mandatory, but it's something that was established during the pandemic so that you could submit your vaccine information so that it would, uh, you know, so that the government would receive that, could make sure that you were vaccinated. Now it's not really for that anymore, but they're still keeping that app around as a way to get you to submit information about yourself before you enter the country, right? Um, so I think that kind of the general use of these technologies in society to be able to prove things about yourself, to scan your phone when you go into a cafe or coffee shop or whatever, that hasn't really stuck around and I think that's good. Um, but I am concerned about the degree to which you know, these kind of things have been normalized at the border. And also that's a place where I think um, a lot of people are less concerned about how those technologies are rolling out there. And so it's easier for the governments to keep them there. Um, but I think it's something that we should probably be a bit more concerned about. Awesome. Okay. My final question uh, for this session, and we'll have a little, little break, but um, giving you the opportunity to be positive, because I think that's important. <laughs> 
um, doesn't come naturally to me, so you have to forgive me if it is a bit of a clumsy question. Um, so yeah, we've heard about a lot of the sort of what I call antisocial tendencies in technology, the way that they can isolate us from each other, the way that can have a negative effect on the economy, or it's particularly from a workers' perspective, the way that can be used to crush um, workers' rights, the way that it can be used to undermine various established economies in which workers potentially have um, not the worst situation when it comes to their, their employment um, and so forth. Um, but do you see any potential for recent developments in technology, say over the last 15 years, because that's a, that's a time frame you've been using, um, that could be repurposed for pro-social ends? So is some of the technology we're seeing inherently anti-human? Is there no way to use it in a positive way? Or do you think there's um, can, uh, a term someone uses, can we seize the apps, you know, and, and use them to build a, build a slightly better world? Is there, is there, is there light in this um, tunnel? Yeah, it, it's difficult for me because I... I criticize a lot and and think less about the positive implementations um, I think I think it is encouraging to see the degree to which there has been kind of a greater critical and kind of skeptical approach to technology over the past number of years right because especially like after the recession you know in the early 2010s we were kind of in a moment where you know people were very positive about the tech industry and what the tech industry was proposing, what would, this would mean for us. And I think it's good that kind of we've moderated that a bit, right? To be able to think about what the broader impacts of this is, um, to make sure that we're not kind of falling for the, the public relations lines of a lot of these major tech companies, just allowing them to get away with the things that they want to get away with to benefit their business models, their control over us, their control over workers and things like that. Um, I think that there are probably opportunities to use some of these technologies in a positive way, right? But if we think about like what is going to enable that to happen, it's it's you know such a significant change to kind of the economic system that we have now that it's very difficult to imagine them being used in that way anytime in the near future. And I think that that is where kind of the necessity to oppose a lot of these things and to ensure that they're they're limited, their scope is limited, really, you know it's really necessary for us to do those things, right? Um, you know, when I think about technology, I think that there's two different kind of approaches that you can take on these things, right? And one is the idea that as technology kind of evolves, as it advances, it kind of just advances in one direction. And as long as we are making progress, even if it's under these kind of terrible tech companies, then that is, that is ultimately good because these things can at one point be repurposed for more positive ends. And I think actually, you know, obviously it's much more nuanced than that, right? You know, pulling from the work of people like uh, Langdon Winner or David Noble who look into um, various different kind of aspects of technology and the politics of technology in particular. So there are some technologies that, yeah, you know, that they don't have kind of a particular kind of political element to them. They can be implemented in, in one system and then re-implemented in a different system um, without really kind of inhinging on our rights in a, in a particular way, right? But there are other technologies that are kind of inherently political and built into them is the notion that we're going to treat labor in a particular way, that society and the political systems in society are going to be constructed in a particular way, right? Um, and I think that that is a bit more of what I'm concerned about is that as these systems are being implemented, they also kind of close off the opportunity to imagine something else, to you know realize something else. They ensure that we act in a particular way that benefits these tech companies, that benefits, you know, that creates a society where their power is enhanced and our power is further diminished. Um, and where these things can't be easily kind of, you know, turned in a different direction or used in a different purpose. 
Like, you know, one of the examples that is often used is, you know, if we look at the gig economy and the use of the apps in a particular way, like, it's really negative to see how Uber has used it, what it's meant for workers, and what it has meant for the way that we, you know, use particular services. It's been exploitative, it's made workers more precarious, and things like that. But if we just had kind of worker cooperatives using these apps instead, then that would be much more positive. And I think that's really difficult to actually achieve in practice, right? I, I think that the idea behind it, I think the hope is really great. Um, but when you look at the way that these apps, these companies like Uber have been able to operate in such a way where they can lose billions of dollars over the course of 15 years and they can still continue operating as long as they are kind of pushing down the, the pay and the rights of workers, um, and then you look at these other kind of cooperative models that you know, don't have access to that kind of capital, can't compete on price with these major kind of companies, it makes it much more difficult to realize and turn the cooperative model into more of a sustainable one because you know, you, you, you're letting this other kind of model exist alongside it, a model that is global, a model that can lose more money in particular markets to drive out competitors and all these sorts of things, right? Um, so yeah, so it's, it's very difficult. I still think that like, we can use technology for, for good ends, but I think that especially the way it's implemented, the way it's developed under this particular industry, under this particular economic system, needs to be challenged if we can ever hope to you know, achieve something, something better. Awesome. Thank you so much, um, Paris. Uh, we will have a 10 to 15, depending on how, how, how um, cruel you are to Nick when you line up at the bar and so on and so forth. But um, if, in case people do have to leave, I would really encourage everyone to uh, thank Paris for coming and talk to us. That was really interesting. That was just really amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.